it's Friday, May the 5th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio, David Brady, Stanford University political scientist and the Davies Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, and Doug Rivers, Stanford political scientist and Hoover Senior Fellow and Chief Scientist for YouGov, the Palo Alto-based internet survey firm. And surveying is a topic of our conversation today, what the polls have to say about Donald Trump 100 days and one week into his presidency. Gentlemen, good to see you both, and a happy Cinco de Mayo. Thank you. All right, uh, Doug, you're gonna dazzle us with some poll numbers, but let me set this up for you by going through a few numbers that I pulled down off the YouGov website. This is the YouGov Economist Weekly Tracking Poll of Registered Voters, and I went back until the very beginning of this presidency, and Doug, here's what I found. In the time that you've been tracking President Trump, he has never climbed above 46% or fallen below 43%. His disapproval consistently runs between 46% and 51%. A year ago, Barack Obama was 45 to 51%, by the way. You guys asked the question, quote, do you approve or disapprove of the way Donald Trump is handling his job as president? The last time I looked, Doug, it's 43% approve, 47% disapprove. This suggests that this man is rather locked in in terms of his like and his dislike. Well, I think our politics is rather locked in. Um, what we, the stability in our polls comes from the fact that we interview the same people over time. Uh, so the composition of our samples is not changing from having more Trump voters one day uh, than in another day's poll. Um, and what we've seen, and we think this is right, um, is uh, despite the various problems Trump has had, uh, he's yet to do something that has lost him a significant amount of support uh, from the people who voted for him last year some of whom are not in his base. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's something on the order of 25, 30% of the people who really are in the category of Trump could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they would stick with him. Uh, there's another set of people who are Republicans that voted for him, and Trump does things that make them uncomfortable. Uh, but what, they, what hasn't happened is uh, that he's lost their support. He's doing enough. Uh, that keeps the Republican base relatively happy that they haven't defected. Mm -hmm. So Dave, he has a good week in office, good week for a standard would be picking a Neil Gorsuch, a good week would be getting Neil Gorsuch confirmed. He has not so good weeks in office where he has to back off of executive orders or maybe a bad week uh, for his base would be uh, signing a continued resolution of a budget which looks pretty ugly to them, but yet the numbers show that people just don't really spike or they don't abandon him one way or the other. Well, it's true in one sense, but as, uh, doc, uh, if you look at the Gallup polls and the other polls, because they're doing cross-sections, you get bigger swings. So you have, I think at some point, he was down at 38 approval. And, and, it, and as Doug, Doug's uh, point is, of course, that they're interviewing different people. So uh, what happens is that Trump voters, uh, people who voted for Trump, are less likely to respond to the survey call because they know, they know it's not so good. Um, it's true he doesn't, but the base uh, the base has held with him. He's done more campaign events at this point than any other president, as far as I can tell. He sticks to the uh, basic message, and and after all, it is a hundred days. Uh, so when you follow up on what people say, they say, "Oh, he's done more in the hundred days." Uh, there's a lot, lot of lot, lot of time to come. I would say on the health care bill, 
there are 14 Republicans who voted uh, for the health care bill, uh, and the district was carried by Hillary Clinton. And uh, there are 23, uh, in addition to those 14, nine more, who voted uh, f uh, against uh, voted uh, against the health care bill. Right. And uh, as you recall, in 2010, it really hurt that the Republicans, uh, Republicans gained 60-some seats uh, the first year after passage. So I think uh, the health care bill uh, and its rollout and how it gets affected in the long run is going to be a big issue in the 2018 president and the uh, congressional campaign. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's clear that moderate Republicans in these swing districts are worried about how their vote on the health care bill is going to come out. Uh, it was quite a different situation uh, when you had a Democratic president uh, and you could pass these symbolic votes to repeal Obamacare and nothing ever was going to happen. Now these votes really do matter if something happens and um, the Republican congressmen don't have the kind of uh, loyal base that uh, Trump has. Uh, they aren't Teflon. and. Uh, uh, you know, a bunch well, of he them. isn't in the long run either. <laughs> so uh, let me, what, you probably don't know about this, but uh, Doug's firm has, I heard Doug give a long presentation on this, and hopefully this one will be shorter. <laughs> but uh, he, have been, they've been following, you got following the president's tweets, and they send the tweets out to uh, samples of YouGov voters, and then they get reactions. And uh, one thing that stuck with me about his presentation, and he can elaborate more, was that the one thing that Democrats, Republicans, and Independents all seem to agree on is they wish he'd stop tweeting. So maybe <laughs> yeah. Doug can talk a little bit more about that. But Yeah, so every day at about 6 p.m., we take uh, Trump's tweets from the previous 24 hours, uh, and we ask a, a random sample of a thousand people uh, to rate them on a scale from great to terrible. Um, and uh, it's interesting patterns because it's, it's not that people uniformly approve of Trump. Uh, when he picks uh, fights with Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, or uh, says things that are unpresidential, uh, even Republican voters don't like those tweets. Um, you can, uh, the site is tweetindex.yougov.com, um, and you can see yesterday's tweets. Um, so I looked, uh, uh, I guess it was a couple days ago, at the, uh, we should have a good government shutdown. Mm -hmm. uh, and that one was uh, not the lowest, but uh, pretty near the bottom of uh, the ratings that uh, even uh, the average Republican voter didn't think there was going to be, that a shutdown would be a good thing. And off the top of your head, do you remember what was a popular tweet? A uh, popular tweet is when he is being presidential. Yeah. He's meeting with a foreign leader, a Justin Trudeau or the uh, premier of China. Um, I'd say one of them was Xi Jinping. He's, a, you yeah. know, he's, he's helping us out on this. They, anything that sound, as I recall the presentation, anything that sounded presidential or uh, not Trumpian of the, of or, the uh, nasty sort. I mean, uh, normally like. presidents... <laughs> Go for things that are nonpartisan, where you can recognize war veterans. Uh, you're representing our country um, in meetings with other countries. Um, those things, you know, appeal across the board. What's, 
interesting about Trump, and I think it comes from his reality TV background, he's constantly looking for conflict. Uh, he clearly thrives on it. Um, and I'm sure there are uh, a bunch of voters out there that respond the same way. But the swing voters are definitely not in that category, and he's not doing himself any favors. Yeah, it's interesting because the conventional wisdom, conventional wisdom being what it is, is that when he does this tweeting, it appalls those who want Trump to be statesmanlike presidential, but it feeds the beast that is the base, that they, right. this is our guy, this is why we vote for him, because he is just doing something politicians don't. Yeah. But you're suggesting that this is just not being well accepted across the board. But let's take it back to the YouGov poll numbers, Doug, and you're yeah. looking at well, uh, your The thing I would say, Bill, is that even when they rate him negatively, mm-hmm. it doesn't lead to an overall abandonment of Trump. Right, so, so let's, let's walk through people the People distinguish between individual things Trump does, which they do or don't like, and people... Right. disagree on those. And overall, do you prefer Trump to, uh, the Republican base prefers Trump to any Democrat? Right. Well, one other thing you should point out here is while the numbers on Trump's approval rating are not good, uh, his handling of the economy is uh, is uh, favorable. He's up uh, 10 points over uh, where he's down 8 to 10 points. And that, that number is a good sign for him because uh, it turned about a month ago and it's been trending upward a bit. So the fact that people perceive the economy as good and that his handling of the economy is good, that, that, that is a pretty good sign for him, I think. Yeah, the conventional wisdom in political science is that the number one thing driving political success is a good economy. Right. Uh, and people will overlook all sorts of uh, faults if you can deliver a growing economy. Right, so the magical number of 3% economic growth, right? 3%, I think, yeah. would be ecstatic. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Doug, you've been looking down at your uh, phone. I don't blame you when Dave Brady is talking. You're probably trying to tune <laughs> up. But you, have some, you have some data on your phone that you've, you've been looking at. Um, yeah, so one of the things that was interesting in, in the past week is the consumer confidence numbers came out, and they're relatively good, uh, and there's a debate on why this is. Um, so there was a time uh, 25 years ago when Democrats and Republicans generally tended to agree on the direction of the economy, um, so that when things were bad, both members of both parties thought they were bad, and when they were good, members of both parties thought they were good. And what's happened um, really since uh, the Clinton years is uh, a polarization in how people rate uh, the state of the economy. So if you look at the Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, there's a huge gap between how Republicans and Democrats view the economy, with Republicans being pretty positive at the moment and optimistic, and Democrats negative and pessimistic. The exact reverse of where they were in October. Yes. In October, Democrats were positive. They thought that Clinton was going to win. They thought things had been doing well and they were going to get better, and Republicans thought the opposite. Mm -hmm. Um, And you saw the same thing in January of 2009, where blacks went from being extremely negative and pessimistic on the direction of the country, and they turned on a dime with Obama's inauguration. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, is this real? I mean, is, is it the case that people, you know, generally political scientists believe that the economy um, affects uh, people's political beliefs, right. that when the economy's good, they like the incumbent president. Uh, but this suggests it's the reverse. 
It's when they like the incumbent president, they like the economy. Um, and so I wondered, you know, is this to be believed or is it uh, unreliable survey evidence? So we ran an experiment this week uh, where what we did was we started half the sample with a uh, traditional market research survey. 90% of our work is market research, and we ask people what kind of toothpaste they buy and so forth. Um, so, what kind of cars they use. Yeah. So in particular, we asked them what smartphone you own, how much you paid for it, are you planning on uh, getting a new one this year, um, do you think they're too expensive? Uh, then we ask about, you know, are you planning on buying a new car, uh, is your... Uh, home value increasing, and standard sort of stuff. It's quite tedious to take. Um, and um, so that's one treatment. Uh, the other was we asked people about Trump and how they voted and whether they approve of Trump or not. And then we asked the economic questions. Um, so we're priming them in one case to focus on the economy and the other case to focus on politics. Um, we found some very interesting things. There was a 10 to 15 point difference uh, between uh, people who started with the market research type questions and how they answered the same consumer sentiment question as someone that started with a set of political questions. Um, there's still differences between uh, Democrats and Republicans on this, but it looked to me like you could take a big chunk of the swing we've seen in the consumer confidence numbers uh, by changing the context in which people are evaluating the economy. Now that begs the question of when they um, decide how to uh, vote or whether they approve or disapprove of Trump, whether they're responding to the economic evaluation they would have given in a purely economic context or in the politicized version. Right. So there were there have been some other experiments. This is a much better one that where they would uh, ask people and then they go back and ask them, and they give them five dollars. And, and when you gave them five dollars, this is where they were asking them what yeah. the unemployment rate yeah. was. And yeah. so it turns out that people, um, if you're a member of the president's party, you tend to underestimate the unemployment rate. And if you are a member of the opposition party, you overestimate it. Um, but then you offer people, you know, we'll give you so much money if you're within, you know, X percent of the actual number. Uh, and it turned out that eliminated a lot of these uh, error. Yeah. So, so they know, but they it's uh, so it's uh, so that there's gonna we'll we'll uh, hopefully over the next year or so have more evidence on which of the two it is. I mean, because it's a crucial question, right? Just the way Doug put it, if if you if the if you believe the economy, uh, depending upon who you're for for president, that determines your view of the economy. That's a lot different from the way the economy is performing in your view of the president, it flips all those economics models uh, on retrospective voting right on their head. Boy, it sure does, but the idea that you view the economy is in essence an extension of how you view right. politics of the government. We own the government, therefore we own the economy, we like the government, we like the economy. Yep. Uh, is, this, is this just a function of our times? or? Well, we don't know. Started uh, in the 90s, though. Yeah, so Trump is a wonderful experiment for right. political science. Um, you know, because he's willing to say, hey, it's all fake news. You know, the economy's great. I fixed all the problems, and you should be optimistic. Um, but at some point, we're going to have economic numbers, which will either be good or bad. And if they're good, it'll be a test of whether Democrats will credit 
a Republican president for good economic numbers. And if they're bad, will uh, Republicans blame them for them? Uh, and I don't know how that's going to come out. I do think we're in a bit of a different world than the you know, post-World War II consensus where the parties were relatively close together. Republicans were on the conservative side, Democrats were on the liberal side, but there wasn't this huge gap between them. They didn't have these very polarized regional bases. Um, and, you know, what we have now is a situation where people are able to essentially create their own perceptions of what the world's like. And so we may find that measurements, objective measurements of the economy are less influential than they were in the past. That's consistent with this notion that uh, traditional left-right determination of politics where the Democrats always got the less well-educated, the blue-collar voters, and they didn't get them this time. And same thing in Brexit, and there's a switch now from, we don't have great information on it yet, but it does seem, Doug's comment about we may be moving to a different world, a lot more center periphery, the London vote on Brexit, uh, the Dutch vote. So uh, it's not just here that uh, this sort of thing is happening. It's uh, across the across the board in European and, and other European countries. I want to get to France next, uh, but let me just close out Trump with one question, you guys. Very broad question now. Let's put on your Stanford political scientist hats. You're in front of an audience of students, and as a political scientist, you're asked the question, what in the first 100 days, in terms of the polling data you look at from a political scientist standpoint, what surprises you about this presidency 100 days in a, in a week into it? Just based on what you're seeing on the polling, just what the data shows you. Are you, are you surprised? I'm surprised that, I mean, most people are surprised that Trump is as unpopular as he is, you know, running at sometimes sub 40% during what's supposed to be the honeymoon period. I'm surprised that Trump is as popular as he is, um, given that the sort of chaos that the Trump administration has been so far. And that about 90% of his media coverage is negative, right? Yes. Yeah. Right. I, I guess I was a little surprised that uh, presidents, when they get elected, usually get a bump. Uh, but he, he didn't get that bump right from the get-go when he uh, gave his inaugural address. George Will, George Will, conservative, uh, obviously, uh, columnist, smart guy. He said that was the worst inaugural speech he's ever heard. So he didn't get any breaks from the media right off, so that, that could uh, help account for it. But the fact that it hasn't moved much is surprising because you would, uh, you would, you just wouldn't think that. You'd think it'd move more. Uh, but presidents get a bump because they're nonpartisan presidential yeah. at their inauguration. Right. Uh, you know, JFK, who won by yeah. uh, a tenth, tenth of, of a point. percent, or actually, turns out if you count the votes properly, lost. In quotes, yeah, won. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, he announced in his inauguration this was not a victory of party, but a celebration of democracy. Right. Um, that's what normal presidents do. Remember, and he Trump also appointed Doug Dillon. He appointed Republicans yeah. to the cabinet, and he said right. stuff that I was going right, to push. But you say presidents try to rally the nation from the beginning. Yeah, and you at least make symbolic moves towards the other side. Yeah. Uh, Reagan did it. Uh, Bill Clinton did it. Barack Obama did it. Um, and Trump started from day one in, in his inaugural speech attacking the other presidents of both parties sitting right. behind him. Didn't, didn't stash a Democrat in the cabinet. Yep. Yeah. Things like that. So that's the main thing. You're just surprised. You're surprised by that. That is that is that he remains. That his popularity remains where it is. And his unpopularity is not spiked. I think it's early to. I mean, when the real test comes when, at some point, the economy is going to turn down. 
uh, growth won't be so high. Uh, so at that point, that's when you really... So the question is... He's delivered one thing to the Republican base, and that's Neil Gorsuch. Right. Well, he's, But that was easy. Yeah. They had the majorities. They were willing to... Uh, you know, eliminate the filibuster on Supreme Court nominations. Yeah, they try. That take was credit. done by Congress. They try and take credit. They're going to try and take credit for the health health bill and repealing it. But mm-hmm. the, there, it seems to so. Be what are they, they going to do when the numbers come out on this <laughs> thing gets scored? And it's going to probably be about the same as the previous one. So there's two things again. So one, they got it through. So a lot of them. I talked to a couple staff members and one member that I know and. They were worried uh, that if they didn't get this through, the base would, the base would be upset with them. So right. they feel better about that, except for the ones that are pressured. The fourteen I talked about earlier. Uh, now it goes to the Senate, and uh, so they can take some credit for that with mm-hmm. uh, their base. But the base are often in the Trump thing. They're the people he needs, the people who are going to be perhaps hurt by this bill when it gets scored. They're the ones that are in the base, so and the Senate, uh, the Senate, the bill is going to move to the left to get through the Senate, and there's some talk now with some Republicans. uh, I read this morning that they're even thinking about starting new. That is, they're not even that. That is, there's some Republicans that are talking about this is not a start. No, I think that's almost guaranteed. I mean, clearly, this takes some of the pressure off. He's gotten something passed by one House of Congress. Right. That's a pretty low bar, but that shows you how bad things have been. Right. Two, a 217 to 213 vote. I can't <laughs> disagree with that. <laughs> Not bad. Let's switch channels now and let's cue the Edith Piaf music and let us move out of the United States into the lovely nation of France, where David Brady was recently. Gentlemen, 91 years ago. Rivers is there also. And Rivers, too. 91 years ago this August, a lovely young woman named Gertrude Ederly. Dave, did you know her? No, I can't know her personally, but I... Before your time, Gertrude Ederly, she plops herself in the English Channel and she starts swimming west. And 21 miles later, she arrives in Dover. She becomes the first woman to cross the English Channel. Gentlemen, I pose it to you. Come Sunday, is Brain Le Pen the... Is she the Gertrude Ederly of French politics? Will she have crossed the Channel and brought Brexit to France? No. Uh, You know, in the U.S., the... The question is, could it be wrong? Yeah, because turnout. So we've talked about that on this program quite a bit in the past, questions of turnout so on. And uh, for, for me, uh, the, tr- the Trump election, even though, he won- even though she won the popular vote, uh, so Doug uh, wasn't far off on that. The question was, it was within three or four points. We knew that. Now, the closest polls I've seen are, uh, she, she's a, 42%. And I, I don't think there's going to be that big a swing. For a but what you should think is it's not going down. It, the percentage uh, for the National Front is going up much more than the, for the time when her father ran. I, my guess it'll be over 40%. And if a lot of people turned out, it could even be closer. I don't think she'll win. But it's it's like the uh, Geert Wilders thing in the Netherlands. People talk about, oh, he didn't win. Right. No, but his party went from 12 to 20 seats. They became the second most popular party. It's not going down, mm-hmm. uh, even though they didn't win. Well, I don't think it, they'll win, but it's not going away. Doug, it certainly would be an earthquake if she won. Right. Now, Doug, you have tracked the Trump phenomenon here in the yeah. U.S., and you were all over Brexit as well, polling that as well. As you look at what's going on in France, how 
if, if we must look at France as a continuation of this trend in terms of these choices, and yeah. there are some similarities to point out between France and the U.S., for example, um, the choices between Le Pen and Macron, I believe what she calls Macron, uh, what, the smirking banker, and he calls her, what, the, the, what, the great priestess of fear. Uh, you can talk about the two political systems, the political system kind of failing here in the U.S. in these choices, the French election, also not a wonderful choice. But, Doug, as you look at Trump, as you look at Brexit, and now you look at France, do you see France as a continuation of the trend, or what is it about France that differs from these, from these previous episodes? All right, so there are a couple things here. Um, one is this is a second-round election. Uh, all the other ones have been one-shot elections, one and they could well have turned out differently if people had expected um, or had been worried about them. Uh, so remember, most people ex expected uh, Brexit to fail. Uh, most people expected Hillary Clinton to win and Donald Trump to lose. Mm -hmm. um, the difference here in the polls is quite a bit larger than it was in either of those races. So the, tip, the average was three and a half, four points uh, for a Clinton lead. Um, and in Brexit, uh, that was pretty much even to, you know, the <coughs> biggest lead was a point or two. Um, so I, I, I would be shocked here if there's a third polling failure. Um, but that is how it could occur. Uh, you know, the explanation for the 2016 election in the U.S. was uh, low turnout by core Democratic constituencies and high turnout by core Trump voters, white working class rural voters in Midwestern states. That's what swung the election. In Brexit, it was the same thing. It was uh, rural voters in England uh, turned out at higher rates uh, than the urban voters did. Um, the expectation that Penn is going to lose may depress turnout in France. I don't think it'll be enough, but uh, wow, it, if it is, it would be the same recipe. There are some differences. The differences are that in a multi-party system, all the other parties have come out against Le Pen. Uh, that doesn't mean that their voters will do so, but it does mean they're spending some uh, top all the time major and parties. Yeah, right. time and effort doing it. Um, but I, uh, just to uh, come away from the polls for a minute, I, I, think, uh, I think Macron will win, but then uh, he doesn't have a party. Uh, when the next uh, that's probably up, helping him, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's helping him at this point. But then, come time for the elections that have come within the next year, for the French National Assembly, not having a party, can he put together anything like a working majority? So the question you have to believe is that I think what's causing this is this uh, is globalization and uh, changing uh, all the sorts of things, automation, gig economy, all those things are changing. But which means that, that, that the end result is, does Macron have a solution to that? I don't think he does. And that means that the National Front and movements like that are not going away. Mm -hmm. I think you really do. My view is you have to generate three, three and a half percent growth, real growth in an income, before you start to get away from people uh, feeling like that. And I don't see his having a political majority in the National Assembly to make the changes that would be necessary to generate growth in France. So yeah, I, I see I, her going away. Well, the pundits are predicting a Macron win and then a highly unpopular administration because uh, he faces the same problems that Hollande did. Right, correct. 
Uh, I've not been to Europe since November, but I spoke to a German crowd, and at the time the German crowd, the people who talked to me afterwards after the speech said, well, we could never do in Germany what you just did in America. <laughs> and perhaps, Doug, you encountered this in Great Britain. As they you told you that? They told me that. You, you didn't remind them of the 30s, did you? <laughs> the elections they had in the 1930s. I wish I'd have been there. That doesn't seem to come up in the conversation. <laughs> well, I would have brought the summit. I mean, I would have brought it up. Sorry. <laughs> I would have brought it up. Yeah. yeah. The thing is, Dave, I want to get invited back. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Doug, maybe you encountered the same mentality when you're doing Brexit. The British just saying, well, we just won't do this to ourselves. We're Great Britain. Here's a question, gentlemen. Do you think the French now, having watched what's transpired in the U.S., having watched what transpired across the channel, do you think they're past the attitude of, well, we're the French, we're not going to go this direction? In other words, has mm. reality sort of mugged them in this case? Um, well, I think there's quite a bit of difference of feeling in the U.K. about Brexit now. Um, Re that remorse, regret, uh, much less than much Americans less. think. Uh, obviously, it is unpopular uh, in London and uh, on the left, uh, but um, hardly anybody is seriously talking about uh, uh, overturning it. The, the Lib Dems are the only party that are uh, running on that platform, and while they're going to pick up some seats, uh, they're still going to be a very small party. Um, the predictions of catastrophe uh, that preceded uh, Brexit and occurred on the day after the election uh, didn't come to pass. Uh, and Theresa May, who was not a supporter of Brexit, uh, has essentially committed herself to it. You know, sort of, she wasn't a supporter. No. I'm, she was. I mean, she wasn't a uh, vigorous opponent of it either. Right. Uh, but she was definitely on the Remain no, side, as as was Cameron and the Conservative Party. And, you know, she said Brexit means Brexit, and they're going down that road. And, I, uh, you know, it's a question of exactly what it looks like, but there's not a lot of talk in the U.K. at the moment of reversing Brexit. Right. Let me read to you a passage that a very smart political scientist wrote a little while ago. Get your thoughts on this, Dave Brady. Quote, Globalization has created big winners and it's lifted a billion people around the world out of poverty, which is great. But there are a lot of losers and they're finding their voice. I thought you said that was by a smart political scientist. Who wrote that, Dave Brady? I don't know. I might have. You did. Uh, oh, that, okay, is, that is David Brady talking about globalization, which is something you like to talk about. I agree you with point that. Out, you I point agree out with that, that guy then. <laughs> no, you like to point out in the history of the United States, the political system has yeah. been disrupted before by yeah. an anti-globalization yeah. sentiment. As we look at the results on Sunday in France, if we're supposing that Le Pen goes down, Macron is the winner, Dave, is that a win for globalization? It's a win for the European Union and a form of globalization, but in terms of the... So for me, the big issue is there's... This is a point Danny Roddick at Harvard makes, but and, and I, I there's a connection between them. I, don't, I wouldn't go as far as he does, but... The argument is there's uh, sort of globalization, rampant globalization, and there's nationalism, sovereignty, and democracy. And his claim is you can have two of the three, but you can't have all three. And you can see how they're connected because, you know, if you just take Google in the U.S., uh, they can track you. You have to opt out of being tracked right. uh, for marketing. And in the EU, you have to do the opposite. But if it's real globalization, those companies want everybody to have the same set of rules, which means national sovereignty is lost, and in some sense, then elections play, uh, play a role. So I, I agree that. So the central question is free uh, trade uh, has been great. Uh, it's billions of uh, lots of people out of poverty, but it has had effects in these various countries. 
and the effects have uh, been asymmetric. They've uh, hurt uh, blue-collar workers, places mm -hmm. in my hometown. Right. Uh, and, and the result of that is economists are now trying to think about, well, how do we keep, keep globalization, but we keep it within the constraints so that we make sure that these people aren't hurt. There's, uh, and I don't think there's redistribution, there's uh, people talk about national income. I don't think anybody has an answer to that, particularly given the, a culture like ours where you're supposed to work right. in order to make a living. We don't, we don't have any answers to that, and I don't see the French election and Macron, right. Macron is providing an answer but You know, to Doug, that. We, well, do, we do insist upon trying to read something into what yeah. this means, and I know that you hate, you guys hate punditry with the passion of a thousand hot suns, but that's why I asked the globalization. What does it read in the globalization? Let me take you down a couple other paths, Doug. Is this a victory for Angela Merkel, for example? Well, if Le Pen so were we, to win, right. it would be a death blow death to the blow EU to and to globalization, and Merkel would... So you would look, read that much into the results? If it were that direction. Right. If it's the other way, uh, you know, it obviously is a win for globalization, what they call neoliberalism in, in Europe. Right. Um, but, you know, people are going to look at the size of the win. So the Netherlands, uh, where the populist candidate lost, but lost fairly narrowly. Uh, you know, that was a blow uh, against populism, but it wasn't a death blow. And I don't right. think the French election is going to put an end to this. Right. And from a pollster standpoint, is it as simple as looking at the French results and trying to predict, trying to say how many people voted for Macron and how many people were just reacting against Le Pen? Well, this is like a flu epidemic. It seems to be going across borders. Uh, and anything that slows it down will be viewed as someone has taken a stand against this. Uh, but the direction and the trend is you know, exceedingly let me, obvious. Let me throw one more person to the conversation, Barack Obama. Because Macron has turned to Obama and has sought Obama's endorsement, and Obama has endorsed him in the last week. Is it too much, Doug, to read that Barack Obama has still has potency in Europe? Well, more than Donald Trump. More than Donald Trump. <laughs> Which is the next question. What does this say? If Macron defeats Le Pen, what does this say about Donald Trump? Well, you know, the thing about Obama is I think he was at least – trying to emulate what George W. Bush did, which was to take a step back. Going to Tahiti? Well, so which is George kind of a W. French Bush you think about had it, a very low profile after the right. 2008 election yeah. and um, um, helped his poll numbers go up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my impression is Obama, by essentially taking a long vacation and, and really not saying anything against <laughs> Trump, despite huge provocation, um, was trying to do the same thing. Um, but the Democrats have a problem. They don't have a speaker uh, who can, uh, you know, say something that will be convincing. Uh, he's all they've got, and the longer he stays quiet, uh, the, the more you're going to see the leadership vacuum among the Democrats. Yeah, that, and I think that's uh, because you saw in the race for mayor of Omaha, Mm -hmm. An interesting break. Uh, Bernie Sanders went out and campaigned for him, right? And uh, he's kind of a populist uh, candidate, but he's uh, pro-life, and therefore Perez says that's uh, the Democratic National Committee guy says it's uh, unnegotiable. Mm -hmm. And Nancy Pelosi, uh, uh, 
remarkably mild-mannered statement. She came out and said that uh, abortion ought not to be a uh, sine qua non for Democratic candidates, that just because someone's father doesn't mean you can't be part of the coalition. So uh, the Democrats have not yet decided on whether the leaders on the Warren-Sanders faction, and nobody from the kind of more centrist left uh, Democrats has stepped up to lead. Okay, actually, let me let me ask you, Phyllis. You can't keep us from talking about American politics. No, no. <laughs> well, we, we have to get back to it um, because for this simple reason: Hillary Clinton went public last week, and Hillary Clinton offered an explanation for her loss, which essentially James Comey did this to me. Yeah. Um, we have had all sorts of explanations as to why Hillary lost. The Comey explanation: there is the Trump surge at the polls. <clears throat> Democrats didn't turn out for her. Guys, at your simplest, explain to me why she lost. They lost first because they ran a bad campaign. They never had any positive message. Right. Uh, their analytics had some problems. Um, the uh, They didn't turn out their base, uh, and that was largely because their candidate didn't motivate their base. Well, they didn't uh, turn I out don't their think base. It's not, not in those four states. Overall, white working class, yes. Republican vote, people who voted Republican in 2012 was up, and Democratic turnout was flat to down. Um, and I think that was fundamentally more than anything else due to the candidate. Was, we didn't see huge effects of the Comey letter. Uh, you know, given how close the election was, anything could have turned the outcome. Uh, but my overall reaction is who cares at this point? I, I guess, uh, I get, well, I think you care because... Um, care because you're going to run again in four years. Right. You have what to examine yeah. what, what happens the, the part, the Democratic Party has to think through. But it's not going to be Hillary Clinton in four years. But they uh, have to think through why she lost. If, if, the lo if you believe the loss is Comey, then uh, it was some extraneous force. That this is why Any Democrat that thinks they don't have to change what they're doing uh, well, is a fool. This is why I'm asking the question, gentlemen, because we, we can we can lay this on James Comey and we can talk about. I'm trying to answer polls. it actually. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll give you a chance in a second. <laughs> or you can lay it you can lay it on a failure, a mechanical failure to turn out votes. Or right. we can lay it, Dave, as you were just mentioning, in terms of getting bogged down in certain social litmus tests. But it I, wasn't a mechanical failure to turn out votes. It was a motivational failure. I think that uh, what happened was. If you were running her, if you were running her campaign, everybody looked like she was going to win in the polls, and uh, it's true she didn't have a motivational message, but it seems to me it's always sort of easier after the election to look back. But if you're running her campaign, you, you think, well, all I have to do to win is not be Donald Trump. Right. That's what they thought. That's what they thought, and that's what a lot of us thought uh, that 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 would probably carry him across the goal line. But in the end, and, and so what we had suspected all the way on the YouGov polls was that uh, he was going to lose. A lot of Republicans weren't going to vote for him. So several things happened. One, the Republicans came back in the end and said, better him than her. Uh, independents uh, basically went the same way. They also said, that, that, I mean, it was amazing. We tried all during the course of this re recontact survey to force these people who didn't want to vote to make a choice. And they said, oh, we don't like him, we're not going to vote. And in the end, what they chose, they, they, went, with, uh, they went with Trump. So um, I, don't, I don't think uh, Comey had that much of an effect. It's nice for her to 
she believes that and lets her that lets her sleep better at night. That's okay. But uh, I think for the Democratic Party, I agree with Doug. If the Democratic Party thinks that's what caused it, uh, that's a mistake because they they need to figure out as do the Demo as do the Demo as do the Republicans. I think what what are you going to do with this set of voters? Right. You know, Kenki, Illinois, Green Bay, Wisconsin. They voted for Obama and then they voted for Trump. And the question is, what are you going to do for them? Yeah, I think what the Democrats are likely to do is they turn to the hard left uh, with the Sanders-Warren message. And the question is whether they have somebody who can deliver that message as a populist message as opposed to a uh, socialist Vermont uh, university campus message. All right. So, gentlemen, looking at France, if we assume that Macron is the winner on Sunday, what is there for the Democratic Party in America to take away from it? Is it can the Democrats look at those results, Dave and Doug, and see something that Macron did, see something the voters did not do, and say, we can apply this to 2018 and 2020? No. There's a, and you should see, you should see the. Should I generally see agree with Dave. Right it's a different election system. It's a yeah. very different country, yeah, right. different configuration of the parties. Mm -hmm. um, there is a smidgen, which is Macron ran as a nonpartisan candidate. Yeah. I think uh, that's right. And, and that is the way mm -hmm. that you reach out to people uh, who are uneasy about yourself. Yeah. So, one thing I would point out how old is Macron? 39. 39, yeah. 39 right. So, he is young. And yeah. this is one thing that was missing from the Democrats in 2016. And before yeah. I get a lot of angry emails about being an ageist, yeah. she turned 69 shortly before the election. Democrats do not run 69-year-old candidates for president. Historically, they love to elect people in their 40s, people that can show a youthful, forward-looking right. It's yeah. certainly not Bernie Sanders. No, it's not no. Elizabeth Warren. It's not Bernie no, Sanders. The, it's the somebody, Democrats yeah. need right. a, without being ageist, they need somebody uh, who looks like they're younger, uh, newer, uh, the future. Uh, I'm the oldest person here. I'm sorry, though. No, but we can, we can put, okay, so we can balance out the ages. In this Apparently weekend. I'm not running this no, year. No, but, but, but there's, a, right. there's not a, a list of here are 10 people that could run for the Democratic presidential nomination that would be a breath of fresh air. I now, think the right. governor's elections uh, this year in 2018, I mean, coming up 2018, yeah. I think they're going to generate some uh, uh, candidates for. Uh, yeah, but I think. Yeah, you typically, though, need four years. Yeah. You right. remember, you Obama look, emerged in 2004. Right. But if you look at how smitten American Democrats are, for example, with Trudeau, yeah. Canada. All right who's a very young guy, yeah. there's something about youth. And conversely, for Republicans, Republicans don't do youth. Look no further than Marco Rubio, who yeah. just yeah. struggled for a lot of reasons, like a Ted Vonder, which is he just looked too young to be auditioning for the part of Republican president. But the moment. Democrats, I think that they do have some problem. They don't have that. The 2010 elections uh, across the board, uh, 66 House seats, huge numbers. They lost over 700 legislative seats around the country. It kind of, kind of took the base of uh, those people who would be in a position to think about it. So all of the people thinking about it are kind of old. Not, I mean, old, they've been around a long time. So Cory Booker, Stanford guy, he's thinking about running, and McAuliffe right. and others are th People are thinking about running, they've all been around a while, so there's no, there's no Macron out there, and they probably, they probably need one. Kamala Harris doesn't do it for you. Not for me, no. It's hard to envision her picking up uh, white working class voters. Right. Although she maybe would, she would be running with four years in the Senate with a decidedly yep. trans racial appeal. Yeah. It's been done. Yes. Yes. 
it's been done. No, no. One message is try to replicate the Obama elections. Uh, but well, Cory the, Booker's there ahead of her. She's right. been there longer. And well, she's a, a twofer. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the, the first of a group to get elected has bigger impact than subsequent ones. You know, so it was a big deal when Kennedy was the first Catholic president. Um, I think it was, in some ways, maybe a big deal Reagan was the first divorce president. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, no one even asks those questions. Uh, we Bill have, Clinton was the first philandering president. Mm, I don't think well, so. Well, the but, one we knew <laughs> philandered at the time. Uh, Just kidding. But, you know, now there's no discussion at all if somebody's a Catholic or they're divorced. Right. Um, and I, it's not clear to me that it would be or a very big deal if uh, – there were another black candidate. Um, and Hillary was the first woman to come close, and she didn't do that well among women. But it's hard. It's also hard in presidential politics, not impossible, just to do somebody else's act. Yeah. Hillary, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, tried to run as Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama. Yeah. There's that wonderful Saturday Night Live ad of her morphing into Bernie. Yeah. Uh, every Republican since Reagan has tried to run as Ronald Reagan, and it just doesn't quite work. And the one guy decides not to be Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump, lo and behold, wins the presidency. That's a good point. Gentlemen, let me ask you a final question as we get out here. Going back to polls and studying the data, give me the next flashpoint for watching the Trump presidency. We've gone through 100 days. Are we going to wait to 200 days to measure him? And in addition to that, give me the next flashpoint in Europe. What's the next election? What's the next benchmark for the, for the march of nationalism and anti-globalism? So Europe is easy. The next one is the U.K. election, which will probably be a snoozer. It is um, a snoozer. It's over. Um, so, uh, why is it a snoozer, Doug? So Theresa May called a snap election. Uh, the yeah. labor has someone who's not credible as prime minister, and she's doing it basically to increase the moderate uh, in the uh, conservative party. Did you see the local elections yesterday, the results? Yeah. Labor got creamed. Um, so I don't, you know, that's the next one. And then the German elections are a big one because it would be, uh, you know, Merkel is not safe. And it would obviously be another big shock to um, neoliberalism if Merkel were to go Italy down. Italy is uh, Italy is uh, about, about to Renzi, the former prime minister, just won his party's nomination. But uh, the Five Star Movement, which is a genuine internet uh, phenomena, uh, has the most parliamentary. So it's uh, Italy. After that, it'll be Italy. And uh, I. I uh, and I, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't make a prediction on Germany at this point. Nor would I make one on Italy. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., you know, I think the next big thing is going to be uh, progress on uh, the tax bill. The tax bill. Um, if Trump can deliver that, there's going to be a very happy Republican base. Uh, if he can't, uh, then there's it's going to be back to the situation like it was before the health care bill passed the house. And we're talking tax bill start to finish through Congress on his desk, bill yeah. signing ceremony. And I, uh, I also think I've been giving talks to Stanford alumni and places, and I'm getting, uh, I'm starting to get more normal questions on tax bills than uh, you were getting even 50 days ago when people were panicking about, oh God, the country's going to fall apart, et cetera. And by, by that I mean you're getting questions now, well, because under one of the tax scenarios, they cut the rate from 39.6 to 33, right. but then they don't allow uh, state and local tax deductions. 
and that uh, would be death for California and New York and people in California. So I think uh, those 50, are blue states. Yeah, fifty days. Yeah, fifty days ago. Uh, fifty days ago, you were going to get people weren't. Yeah, right? they were. They were talking about all sorts of crazy stuff. But now they're asking, "Well, will we be affected? Well, that happened to us." So you're, you're sort of. People are calming down. I think about Trump. There's very. There's not so much. You know, it'll all blow up. So we're starting to get back to the kind of normal questions, and that I think that enhances the chance that they will get some kind of a bill. Right. I don't think they'll get reform. I think they'll get tax cuts, but not a big-time reform. Mm -hmm. All right. Dave Brady, Doug Rivers, thanks for coming into studio today. Great conversation. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. And yes, please subscribe to us. We want viewers, listeners. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, including Dave Brady and Doug Rivers, straight to your inbox every business day. You can find the Hoover Institution on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. Dave, are you on Twitter? No. Doug? Yes, I'm Doug underscore Rivers. At write Twitter. anything you have on me, write to him. <laughs> Sorry about that, Doug. You may want to change your Twitter handle. <laughs> For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment on Area 45 in just a few days analyzing the returns on Sunday's election in France. Until then, take care, and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.